this is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with, is secession foolish and unworkable? In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, the subject of Cape Independence is getting more media attention lately. The DA's leadership recently rejected the whole concept of Cape Independence. What was that all about? Well, the DA chairperson, uh, apparently that of chairman of chairpersons, Ivan Mayer said, the DA had noted the push by the Cape Independence Party and some lobby groups to have the Western Cape separate from the rest of the country. But he said this is not the view of the DA, the Democratic Alliance. So Mayer, the chairman, quoted from the preamble to the Constitution of South Africa, indicating he didn't see anything in it supporting the breakaway of the Western Cape from the rest of South Africa. I cannot see how you can have a separate Western Cape, because firstly, we do not want to go that way. Uh, we do not believe in that, but there are other parties that believe in that. We will not go that route. That is the wrong route. Being united in diversity is the true reflection of South Africa. And then the DA leader, John Steenhuisen, declared the DA did not support Cape Exit. However, polls have shown that the majority of DA voters in the Western Cape do support a referendum for Cape independence. And it's understandable that the DA has national aspirations. They want to be leading the whole country. And so they're not willing to settle for just the Western Cape, which they've actually dominated for the last uh, 12 or more years. Um, but the majority of DA voters in the Western Cape support a referendum for Cape independence. And most of them actually support devolution, decentralization, self-determination, autonomy. And in fact, even a clear majority supports independence for the Western Cape as well. And the DA cannot support their own, they cannot ignore their own support base. Or their support base may have to reconsider their support to the DA. You could see many more defections in the coming election as voters reassess who best represents their aspirations. This can remind us of the fact that there was a time when the National Party dominated the Western Cape completely. And then the, the National Party moved off from their basic principles and they alienated their supporters. And the people moved over to the DP as they were then, and the ACDP and the Freedom Front who formed a coalition in the Western Cape. And that actually worked quite well because that balanced them. But once the DA, the DP moved into being the DA and then um, they got a majority, then they started to ignore all the smaller parties and they became very arrogant and far more pagan and far more pro-abortion, homosexuality, LGBTQ, and uh, suddenly everything from gambling, Sabbath desecration, whatever was secular humanist, the DA supporters of the DA has shown that when they weren't in an alliance, with the ACDP and the Freedom Front, they lost all moral bearings and they just wandered off into um, real hardcore paganism. And uh, so this business of we don't support Cape Exit and Cape Independence, well, just as well that they've made it known because most of their supporters do. And now this gives the supporters an opportunity to reevaluate. Do I want to continue voting for the DA? Um, interesting that uh, the chairperson, Ivan Mayer, looks at the preamble to the Constitution and he says, I don't see explicit permission for the Western Cape to break away from the rest of the country. Well, you wouldn't have found in the Soviet Union constitution that Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine and Belarus could break away from the Soviet Union either. You wouldn't have seen in the constitution of the British Isles that Ireland could break away, but they did. And uh, they didn't specifically have a clause in the Soviet Union that Finland could break away in 1918, which it did. Uh, or in the Austrian constitution that Switzerland could break away. So the idea that, well, isn't an express uh, promise. But nevertheless, what he's ignoring is the fact that the Cape, um, uh, well, not just the Cape Constitution, the South African Constitution 
does have a provision uh, for self-determination. And so uh, this idea that, you know, I looked at the preamble and I don't see an express permission for it in the preamble. Well, what's that got to do with anything? It's just uh, absolutely bizarre. You know, it's like I just looked in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and earth. I don't see anything there about marriage or this. And, well, no, it's it's just a preamble. So in chapter 14, section 235 of the Constitution of Republic of South Africa, recognizes and guarantees the right of self-determination of any community sharing a common cultural or language heritage within a territorial entity in the Republic. So, you know, the fact that this character uh, couldn't see it in the preamble, well, maybe should go a bit further into chapter 14, section 235, and you'll see something about self-determination, recognized and guaranteed. Still, that's not a bad thing to think that the DA in the launch of the election campaign has informed their voters, we will not support Cape Independence, because that might make a whole lot of Cape voters rethink their allegiance to the DA. Hmm. And what do you say to John Steenhuisen's assertion that secession was stupid and unworkable? Well, Steenhuisen's confessing his own ignorance on this matter with such a foolish statement. Switzerland is one of the most successful, free and prosperous countries on the planet, and they're a result of secession. The United States of America is a result of secession. The Netherlands is a result of secession. Netherlands seceded from Spain back in the 1500s. Belgium seceded from Netherlands in 1830. Finland seceded from Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1918. Norway seceded from Sweden in 1905. These are all countries that are very successful and they've come out of secession. Namibia seceded from South Africa in 1990. There was a long time that Namibia was like the fifth province of South Africa. And uh, they're doing much better than we are right now. So, um, you know, what about Namibia? And then there's South Sudan, a recent African example of secession. You could go to Eritrea as a seed from Ethiopia as well. Does Steenhuisen reject these countries as foolish and unworkable? Does he think we should break off diplomatic relations with Namibia or South Sudan or the United States or Finland, Norway, Netherlands and Belgium? It's, it's such a foolish comment to call secession stupid and unworkable when secession made Singapore one of the most successful economic powerhouses in the whole of um, uh, Asia. Singapore seceded from Malaysia in 1965, and although Singapore's got no natural resources, because of the tax haven and it's very well run, Singapore's got an economy greater than that of Malaysia, which it seceded from. So I don't know what he's talking about, about being stupid and unworkable. Uh, it's definitely not unworkable. It's definitely not stupid. And when some of the most successful countries are the result of secession, I think Steenhuisen needs to apologize. He's insulting the intelligence of his listeners. Um, you have personally witnessed and been involved in a number of secession movements. Uh, Dr. Hammond, can you tell us what you have learned from those experiences and examples? Yes, well, for over 40 years, I've concentrated in serving persecuted Christians in restricted access areas. And that's involved traveling in 42 countries, working in 38 countries across four continents. And this included throughout Eastern Europe, behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. During that time, I had the opportunity of being an eyewitness to several successful secession movements, such as Yugoslavia. In fact, it was on my honeymoon, I was going with my Bible smuggling parents-in-law. Bill Bathman was a pioneer Bible smuggler and evangelist throughout Eastern Europe. And so I had the privilege of going with my new wife and with my parents-in-law, smuggling into Eastern Europe, including Yugoslavia. We heard people in Croatia speaking about their need for independence. Now, I was highly skeptical. This was the 1980s. 
Yugoslavia consisted of six republics, five nations, four languages, three major religions, two alphabets, two calendars, but only one political party, the Communist Party. And so it didn't seem possible, but in 1990, the first multi-party elections were held in Croatia. Now, Yugoslavia means land of the South Slavs. Well, Croatia and Slovenia are not Slavic. They're in fact more Germanic. They used to be part of the Austrian Empire. But Yugoslavia was a creation of the vindictive Versailles Treaty, and they created this land of the South Slavs uh, to basically hack up um, Austria and Hungary. And uh, Yugoslavia is a bad idea from the beginning, and it's not survived the end of the Cold War either. So Croatia, on 25th of July, or 25th of June 1991, Croatia declared independence. And this came into effect on the 8th of October 1991. Well, by 15th of January 1992, Croatia was recognized as an independent country by the European Economic Community. Well, they were attacked by Yugoslavia, but effectively that ended by August 1995 with a decisive victory by the Croats. And since then, 5th of August has been a national holiday, a victory and homeland Thanksgiving Day. Slovenia, there was a group of intellectuals articulating the case for Slovenia independence already in 1987. And uh, the Committee for the Defense of Human Rights was formed. Demands for democratization and independence of Slovenia forced the communist government to enact a number of democratic reforms. So in September 1989, constitutional amendments were passed to introduce parliamentary democracy to Slovenia. And on the 7th of March 1990, the Slovenian Assembly changed the official name of the state to the Republic of Slovenia. And April 1990, the first democratic elections in Slovenia took place. By 23 December 1990, more than 80% of the electorate voted in a referendum for a sovereign, independent Slovenia. And Slovenia declared independence 25 June 1991. They were invaded by the Yugoslav People's Army, the Red Army, on the 27th of June 1991. And this led to the so-called 10-day war. The result was the Brugini Agreement and the withdrawal of the Yugoslav army from Slovenia. Already in December 1991, a new constitution was adopted, followed by laws of denationalization, privatization of state enterprises in 1992. And the members of the European Union recognized Slovenia as an independent state 15, June, uh, 15 January 1992. So that moved very fast, uh, the collapse of Yugoslavia and the uh, establishment of Croatia and Slovenia. And there have been other independent states like Macedonia that have broken away since then too. When I first traveled to Bratislava in Czechoslovakia, talk of the Slovakians seceding from Czechoslovakia seemed unrealistic and it seemed unattainable. But the Christians were adamant Slovakia must become an independent country. Now Czechoslovakia was another bad idea from the beginning which uh, was a result of the vindictive Treaty of Versailles which basically hacked to death uh, Austria and Hungary and uh, Czechoslovakia was an unworkable polyglot nation with uh, the, the Czechs being a minority in the country. And, you know, they had millions of Germans, they had hordes of Slovaks, they had Poles, they had Hungarians in there, and obviously it was going to fall apart. So Czechoslovakia also didn't survive the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain. And uh, the, when the communist rule collapsed in Czechoslovakia in 1989 and the Red Army withdrew, the Slovak Socialist Republic was renamed the Slovak Republic, and on 17 July 1992, Slovakia declared itself a sovereign state, meaning its laws took precedence over those of the federal government. And throughout the rest of 1992, negotiations with the federal government of Czechoslovakia resulted in the vote, 31 December 1992, to dissolve Czechoslovakia. 
The Slovak Republic and the Czech Republic went their separate ways after 1st January 1993. And so the overthrow of the communist rule in Czechoslovakia was called the Velvet Revolution because nobody got killed in it. And then the peaceful separation of Czechoslovakia is called the Velvet Divorce. So those are some interesting examples, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. But then there's the Baltic states as well. Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia are three Baltic states on the Baltic Sea, which occupied over the centuries, Sweden, Poland, Russian empires, all successfully owned uh, the three Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. Well, Latvia was established on the 18th of November, 1918. After the Baltic Revolution, Latvia said, we don't want to be part of this communist mess of Soviet Union. So they seceded from the Soviet Union. In 1940, Latvia was invaded by Stalin's Red Army and the Soviet Union annexed Latvia. But Latvia was liberated just the next year, in 1941, by Operation Barbarossa, when Germany uh, freed them from the Soviets. In 1944, the Soviet Red Army again invaded Latvia with vast amounts of Western weapons and huge amounts of tanks from America and so on. And so they were forcibly incorporated in the Soviet Union again. But starting in 1987, the singing revolution called for Baltic emancipation from communism and from Soviet occupation. And it was a cultural revolution. They couldn't do much to protest, but they got back to the old songs, the old history and culture and sing dancing. And on the 4th of May, 1990, the Declaration of the Restoration of Independence of the Republic of Latvia was issued. 21st of August, 1991, Latvia declared its independence. And Latvia was declared the capital of culture in Europe, and its capital, Riga, has hosted the Choir Olympics, which my daughter, Daniela, as part of the Cape Town Youth Choir, participated in. And over 140 choirs from all over the world gathered in Riga for this event. And by the way, the Stellenbosch Choir won internationally. Absolutely amazing that the Cape Good Hope um, could shine amongst all the choirs of the world at uh, Latvia and Riga. Well, Estonia was also occupied over the centuries by the Polish Empire, the Russian Empire, the Swedish Empire. And they declared the independence 24th of February 1918. Again, as the Bolshevik Revolution took place, they said, we don't want anything to do with this. And they seceded from chaos. 6th of August 1940, Estonia was invaded and occupied by Stalin's Red Army, incorporated into the Soviet Union forcibly. Well, Estonians continued to resist the Soviet occupation. They were freed briefly by the Germans during Operation Barbarossa, but in 1944 again subjugated. And the Forest Brothers resistance movement opposed the Soviet policy of collectivization, forced removals. Many Estonians were shipped into Siberia to make way for Russian immigration. But in 1987, they began the singing revolution, also going back to their culture and celebrating their heritage. And by 1988, the Popular Front for Estonia became the standard bearer for Estonian independence. The Estonian National Independence Party was the first non-communist party in the whole of the Soviet Union. And they issued a law of sovereignty asserting the primacy of Estonian laws over Soviet Union laws. 23rd of August, 1989, there was a major event called the Baltic Way Human Chain. You know, we have life chains here to make a stand for life. We'll add a human chain to um, show solidarity for independence. Two million Estonians, Latvians and Lithuanians took part in a mass demonstration on the major highway that stretched across these three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. Two million people going across many, many miles uh, representing this um, cry for independence and freedom. And in 1990, the Congress of Estonia was formed as a representative body for Estonian citizens. 
They had a referendum in March 1991, and 77% uh, of voters supported independence. A Moscow coup attempt was exposed and resisted, and Estonia declared its restoration of independence 20th of August 1990, also very fast. But this is now observed as a national holiday in Estonia. The last units of the Red Army left Estonia only in 1994, uh, but in 1992 Estonia launched economic reforms and privatisation, free market economy. In 2004 Estonia joined the European Union and NATO. Lithuania seceded from the Soviet Union 16th of February 1918 to form the Republic of Lithuania in reaction to the Bolshevik Revolution, saying we don't want that. But in 1940 they were invaded by Stalin's Red Army. And on the 11th of March 1990, a year before the formal dissolution of the Soviet Union, Lithuania became the first Baltic state to declare itself independent. 11th of March 1990, the Supreme Council announced the restoration of Lithuania's independence. And on 28th of March 1990, the Soviet Union imposed a heavy economic blockade on Lithuania, believing that they wouldn't survive. Well, this blockade lasted 74 days. No supplies allowed in, no exports allowed out. But Lithuania stood firm. It must have been hard. But when the Soviet Union attempted a coup in Lithuania, storming the palace, Lithuanians vigorously defended their council and they inspired other Soviet republics to secede from the Union, including Ukraine and Belarus. And shortly after 11th of February 1991, the Parliament of Iceland voted to confirm Iceland's 1922 recognition of the independence of Lithuania. And they said that still in effect, we never formally recognized the Soviet Union's illegal occupation of Lithuania. So Iceland stated that its full diplomatic relations would be re-established as soon as possible. On the 25th of October 1992, the citizens of Lithuania voted in a referendum to adopt the new constitution. And on 31st of August 1993, the last unions of the Soviet Red Army left Lithuania territory to much rejoicing. Since 2004, Lithuania has also been a member of NATO and of the European Union. Um, Dr. Hammer, you just discussed several examples from Europe. Um, what about Africa? Is secession possible here? Well, we did have the case of Eritrea breaking away from Ethiopia. Of course, that was not um, a change in the status quo because Eritrea always was a separate country. And it's only at the end of the Second World War that the Allies forced Eritrea to be part of Abyssinia and they called the new country Ethiopia. And so Eritrea fought a long war to break free from Ethiopia and they succeeded by 1993. Well, since 1995, I've been involved in the campaign for South Sudan's independence. From 1995 to, to 2002, in just those seven years, I conducted 27 missions to S Sudan. I've delivered over half a million Bibles and books in 24 languages throughout South Sudan and the Nubian Mountains. And during this time, I conducted over 1,200 Bible study services, lectures, and um, chaplain services in Sudan. And outside of Sudan, I did another 1,000 meetings, radio and TV programs, to campaign internationally for South Sudan's independence. And this campaign also involved writing the book Faith Undefined Sudan. Uh, the second edition was double the size of the first. The third edition was three times the size of the original 1996 edition. And I brought in filmmakers like Pat Matriciano of Jeremiah Films, who produced Sudan and Holocaust and Terrorism and Persecution. And I insisted Samaritan's Purse were their first films of Sudan, all of which helped to um, make known worldwide the case for South Sudan's independence and got them international support. We also helped 
established the hospital pioneered by Dr. Fraser Louis, which was one of the original hospitals in Sudan and became the biggest Samaritan Purse project. Now, initially, even the leaders of the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, the SPLA, were very skeptical that the map could ever be redrawn. And they said, the African Union has resisted any changes to the borders delineated in the Berlin Conference of 1884 to 1885. And I argued with the founder of the SPLA, Colonel John Garang um, and Commander Silver Kier, his second command, that only independence for South Sudan could secure their future and their freedom. And they said, well, all we could hope for is autonomy. You're not going to see the map redrawn in Africa, not since Berlin Conference. And uh, I pointed out to them that they would always be an oppressed Christian black minority in an Arab majority country unless they redrew the map where Black Christians are the majority in South Sudan, but they're a minority in all of Sudan. And so, uh, interesting uh, that this was, of course, what was suggested back in 1955 when the British were planning to leave Sudan. Um, many missionaries recommended, please make South Sudan Equatorial independent, or if you don't want to do that, at least make them part of Kenya or Uganda, so that they are affiliated with fellow black Christians, not made servants or slaves of the Arab Muslim North, but to no avail. So from the very first day of independence, 1st of January 1956, the day the British left, the Arabs in the North sought to Arabize and Islamize the South. For example, Sunday was no longer a day of rest. Sunday was a normal school and working day. Friday was a day of rest and things like that. And uh, Arabic was the language in the South, no longer English and so on. And so there was a lot of Islamization, Arabization and uh, they started to oppress people and kill people from the very beginning. And uh, of the first 800 um, officials in South Sudan, they were, of the first 800, 798 were Arabs. There were only two black African South Sudanese in all the 800 appointments of the government over South Sudan in the first years. So the people could see the need. Well, I showed them from Sudan's history and I showed them from the teachings of Islam on jihad, the only way to be free of Sharia law and Arab oppression was to fight for full independence and sovereignty of South Sudan and the Nube Mountains. The map needs to be redrawn. Now, although they were highly skeptical that it was at all possible, today South Sudan is an independent country, and Commander Silver Kier has been its first president since 9th of July 2011. Now, to think in 2003, 2002, I was arguing with Silver Kier about the importance of, of independence for Sudan. He didn't believe it was possible. And yet, just a few years later, he was president of South Sudan. He's still president of South Sudan. Um, um, is the whole of uh, South Sudan free? Well, that would be nice. But no, we have to continue to campaign for freedom and independence for the Nuba Mountains, which is an island of Christianity in the Sea of Islam. They're geographically in the north, but they're culturally part of the south. And unfortunately, they didn't get included in the independence agreement. So the Nuba Mountains uh, of Sudan is a continuing area of resistance to the Arabization, Islamization policies of the cartoon government in South Kordofan. So they still need to redraw the map further. And that's absolutely essential to recognize the ethno-linguistic, the demographic realities, and to avoid further loss of life and to avoid future conflict. Now, not every country which has resulted from secession is successful. What policies can we establish to ensure success, freedom, productivity, and prosperity? Indeed, we mustn't continue to follow in the footsteps of failure. Centralization in a unitary state is as doomed to failure as the Tower of Babel. 
We need to emulate examples of excellence such as the decentralized models of Switzerland and the free enterprise model of Singapore. So just think of how Switzerland, which is made up of French, German, Italian, Protestants and Catholics, uh, but they are decentralized. And while Europe was torn apart by two world wars in the 20th century, where millions of Germans, French and Italians were killing one another in great numbers, the Germans, French and Italians in Switzerland lived in peace and harmony and protected their territorial integrity. Now, how did they do that? Because the canton system is so decentralized that one canton can be German Protestants, another canton can be um, French Protestants, another canton can be German Catholics, the other can be French Catholics and so on. And they've got enough security and decentralization that they don't need to fear or hate their neighbors. They can love their neighbors and work together with them. And Switzerland shows us an example of direct decentralized democracy, a republic, the oldest republic in the world, which shows us you can actually avoid the insane violent wars that have torn Europe apart in the 20th century. Switzerland's an example of excellence, very high standard of living, and uh, we can see that their decentralized model is a good inspiration for us. And then there's the free enterprise model of Singapore, which has absolutely no raw materials. And yet this little swamp land, this little island and swamp, has got a bigger, stronger economy than the whole of Malaysia that they seceded from uh, because they've got, they're have tax haven and they're very efficiently run. Well, the Berlin Conference of 1884 to 1885, which is also known as the Congo Conference, sought to avoid conflict by regulating European protectorates and colonies in Africa. Their goal was to effectively eradicate the slave trade and to avoid conflict between the European powers. So they divided up Africa amongst them. Now, to be fair, they were also seeking to prevent rising American, Russian and Japanese encroachments in Africa. Can you imagine what might have happened if the Russians, Japanese and Americans colonized parts of Africa? They can criticize the Europeans, but the Europeans probably did a better job in developing Africa than the Americans, Russians and Japanese would have. But due to lack of information and a very incomplete understanding of the realities of Africa, Often the borders were drawn along lines of latitude or longitude or utilizing a river. They literally took a ruler sometimes and drew a line. And, okay, that side's going to be French, this side's going to be Belgian or German or British and so on. And it's, it's not good enough than using a river as the border. Well, imagine if the Danube or the Rhine or the um, Thames is used as a, as a border. Well, there's people of the same tribe living on both sides of the river often. So... Um, all of this was not realized at the time of these arbitrary border markings. And yet the African Union does not want to depart from the Berlin Conference uh, map uh, or um, uh, lines. They don't want to redraw the map. Now, in my missionary work, it's become very clear the map of Africa does need to be redrawn. Half of the Shangon people live in Mozambique and they speak Portuguese. And the other half of the Shangon people live in South Africa and speak English. Half of the Avamba people live in Angola, where they've learned Portuguese and they drive on the right-hand side of the road, but the other half of the Avambos live in the south or southwest Africa, what we now call Namibia, and they learn Afrikaans or English as the second language. They drive on the left-hand side of the road. They're even in two different time zones, even though they are just north and south of one another. And then there's the Chichewa people divided between Malawi, Zambia, and Mozambique. And so you could continue throughout Africa showing demographic anomalies where you've got people of the same language divided by some arbitrary border decided in Berlin in 1884. Some people claim that succession is too dangerous and we need to reject, oh, sorry, secession is too dangerous and we need to reject secession in case it leads to war. Well, actually, the greatest conflicts in Africa would have been avoided by secession. 
including the Biafran Civil War in Nigeria from 1967 to 1970, which was horrific and millions died in it. That was because they, the British left the Muslim North and the Christian South in one country and it was a very horrible civil war. Most of the Congo Wars and the long conflict in Sudan would have also been averted if the maps had reflected the demographic realities and not forced some people to be minorities in their own country, oppressed by other tribes, other cultures, or other religions. And so secession actually will prevent war rather than causing it. Is secession for the Western Cape possible, realistic, and viable? Yes, it is, definitely. Um, South Sudan's independence gives hope to other secession movements. It's inexcusable that since independence, the Organization of African Unity, or the African Union now called, has steadfastly refused to allow any maps to be rejoined. The apparent exception being Eritrea, but Eritrea was a separate entity and only forced to be part of Abyssinia after the Second World War. You might recall the South African Springbok Legion liberated Abyssinia from the Italians, and it's the South African army that ended slavery in Abyssinia in 1942, uh, before the hand back to Emperor Haile Selassie. Um, interesting that Abyssinia still had slavery legally on the statute books and only the South African army abolished it before they handed it back. But that's not taught in average school. But anyway, um, redrawing of the maps and recognizing the independence of South Sudan was a monumentally important precedent because it shows that uh, at last they're looking at the possibility of demographic realignment of borders. South Sudan should be free and independent and it is recognized now. And uh, of course, Eritrea was a different story. Namibia was also slightly different, but still, the fact that Namibia, Namibia got independence, the fact that Eritrea independence has been recognized, that South Sudan has, that gives us the hope that independence for the Western Cape is possible. Remember, there was a Cape of Good Hope long before there was a Transvaal and Orange Free State, or Kingdom of Zuland, for that matter, before there was a Transkei. Uh, the Cape's got a history going back over 500 years, and... We in the Cape of Good Hope have every reason to think that we could be successful. We've got a bigger economy than that of Namibia. Uh, we, we are a large area. We've got defendable borders. We've got mountains and desert to the north, and we've got coastlands to the south. There's no reason why the Cape can't be a separate area. Do you know, we would not need to have any load shedding, any power failures, scheduled power failures in the Cape if we were independent. The only reason the Cape has power failures at all is because we're in the national grid and we've got to share our electricity with other parts of the country doing power failures. If we were independent, the Cape would have sufficient electricity for ourselves and we wouldn't need to ever have power failing. That's really a good reason to want to be independent. But there's a lot of other good reasons. So think of this fact uh, that um, the Cape, for every rand we give in taxes, we only get about 12 cents spent back in the Cape. So and that's not saying that money is well spent. It's often misspent by government and corruption and so on. Um, cadre deployments, corruption, uh, BBBEE and all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, the Cape is putting far more into the Union than it's getting out of it. So just to use an example, when the Scottish were given a referendum a while ago on do you want to be independent from the United Kingdom, they voted to stay in the Union. And some people said, well, what would... Um, what would William Wallace and Robert de Bruce say? You know, you give them a chance of independence and you choose not to take it. Well, Scotland's already got autonomy. They've got their own parliament. They've got the Stonest going back. They've got their flag back. But they're getting far more spent in the economy than they put or contribute in taxes. So England's putting more into Scotland than Scotlanders. So there's no reason economically for Scotland to leave. But the Western Cape situation is reversed. We don't have autonomy recognised. We don't 
have our own parliament back. Our parliament's been burned down, actually, uh, by obviously arson. And the government hasn't moved a finger to help repair it yet, two years later. And what have we got out of this relationship in South Africa? It's a centralized government. And when I've spoken to friends in Mitchell's Plain, they say, do you know, in Mitchell's Plain, we do not have one single Afrikaans-speaking colored policeman. We don't have one policeman who speaks our language in Mitchell's Plain. They don't care. And <clears throat> why should we have only people from Eastern Cape who only speak Corsa as our policemen? We do have coloured policemen from Mitchell's Plain, but they are um, arbitrarily sent to other parts of the country. Why are they playing economic games with us where we can't even have our own policemen, our own community? And so there's many good reasons why the Cape would want independence. I speak to Muslims, in, uh, for example, in Burkhap or Malay Quarter, and they say, uh, you know, we are religious people. Uh, we oppose abortion, we oppose pornography, we oppose LGBTQ, and all these things are being forced on us by central government. Even our children are being brainwashed with these things in the schools, and we oppose it. So why should the people of the Cape not be able to um, run their own affairs? Take, for example, the fact that we've got effectively 11 official languages in this country. Afrikaans is meant to be an official language, but in the Western Cape, most people speak Afrikaans as their home language, the majority. But it's treated as a very third class and um, a language that's not respected nationally. And so the national government is discriminating against the primary language of the majority of people in the Western Cape. And so there's a lot of good reasons why the Western Cape would want to be independent. It is possible. And in fact, I've produced this book, A Case for Secession, which shows the legal, historical, biblical foundations and practical steps needed for independence. And even the cover demonstrates uh, the case because we've got 23 countries' flags on the cover that are successful national entities that are the results of secession, starting with Switzerland, the oldest republic in the world, going through the Netherlands, going through the United States and Belgium, Texas, Nicaragua, Norway, Finland, Ireland, Pakistan, Taiwan, Singapore, Bangladesh, Namibia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, Croatia, Slovenia, Slovakia, um, East Timor, um, all the way uh, through to South Sudan. So we've got examples of excellence. I think just the cover and the inside covers where we've got the dates of secession, the names of the countries, the flags of the countries, and which empire country they seceded from, that argues the case already very effectively. It has been done before, it can be done. And there's some great examples of excellence there. Uh, but then the case for secession book, which is 100 pages with 42 pictures, we've got forwards by Kuhn Elgin, who's a district councillor for Freedom Front Plus. We've got Des Palm, the founder of Cape Exit, Jack Miller, the leader of the Cape Independence Party. And we've got Pastor John Weaver from the state writing an introduction. So we've got um, a cooperation from a broad range of people involved in the Cape Independence movements who've got years of experience behind them contributing. And then we show the, uh, the biblical foundations for secession, you know, starting with the fact that the nation of Israel grew out of Egypt. Let my people go. It, Israel is a result of secession from Egypt. And uh, then how Northern Kingdom of, of Israel was a result of secession from Judah, uh, when the United Kingdom split. And this was even endorsed by God saying, this is of me and warning the people not to go and fight against this. 
Don't Fight Against Your Brothers, this movement is of me. And then we showed the foundation of law in, in uh, Magna Carta and my examples of eyewitness testimonies of secession. But we've also got um, the legal foundations Philippines, the rights of self-determination in the United Nations Charter, um, which is based on the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples and the Declaration of Granting of Independence to Colonial Peoples, um, 1960. All peoples have a right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they can freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development. And uh, then the African Union Charter on Human Rights, speaking about all peoples have the right to existence and unquestionable inalienable right to self-determination to freely determine their political status and to pursue their economic and social development according to policy they have freely chosen. It is a fact that the majority of voters in the Western Cape have never voted for the ANC. And so it's unacceptable that we are forced in the Western Cape to endure an inefficient, corrupt kleptocracy of thieves who use racist ideology as a cover for their um, kleptocracy, their, their thieving, corruption, state capture, to use the modern words. And... Uh, why should the Cape not be able to be an example of excellence and be run well and be run independently? So a case of session book is uh, at the printer now and people will be able to order it soon through christianlibertybooks.co.za and they'll be able to distribute these around to people who don't think session is workable or practical or viable. And I think just having this book in hand, just look at some of the pictures, look at the co covers and the color maps and flags and seeing, oh, okay, um, those countries were the results of session two. Mm -hmm. I think that will solve many of the problems. If we could put this in the hands of town councillors, members of parliament, uh, journalists, radio producers, um, opinion formers, school teachers, this would really, I think, sway the debate for many people because this has got facts that ruin the narrative mm -hmm. of people like the DA who want to say that it's stupid and it's uh, unworkable, showing that actually secession is not just workable, uh, but it's an intelligent choice. It's, it's in fact, maybe the only viable choice. We either go down with the SA Titanic or we launch out in a free and independent Cape of Good Hope. Dr. Hammond, can listeners um, access any other resources where they can learn more about secession and the campaign for a free and independent Cape of Good Hope? Yes, in fact, at the end of this book, we've got some very important contacts. And uh, if a person wants to learn more about secession, we've got a number of um, contact details at the back of the book including Cape Exit. Now, Cape Exit had only 7,000 members back in 2019. Today, Cape Exit has over 830,000 members signed up, over 830,000. And so www.capeexit.org or email info at capeexit.org. One can learn a lot and sign up with them. There's the Cape Independence Advocacy Group, www.capeindependence.org. And the email is info at capeindependence.org. There's the Cape Independence Party of Jack Miller, www.capeparty.com, uh, or email cape at capeparty.com. And then there's the Freedom Front, or uh, Freyheads Front Plus, um, www.vfplus.org.za, and email plus, plus, at vfplus.org.za. So those are some of the parties that are doing the most to work for Cape Independence and our own website which did get hacked and destroyed but we're rebuilding it www.capeofgoodhope.africa capeofgoodhope.africa or people can email me peter at frontline.org.today 
but the book, uh, the the book case for secession is available from christianlibertybooks.co.za or admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za or you can order online from www.christianlibertybooks.co.za and it'll be available as an ebook, a print on demand and hard copies as well. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, for um, rejecting the DA's foolish comments, uh, scaremongering against Cape independence. Um, we would like to close by contemplating James chapter 1, verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night. Yeah.